Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with another episode of Crypto Stories, and I'm joined by two very exciting guests, Ryan Sean Adams of Mythos Capital and Dan Zoller of Vision Hell Advisors. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks. Thanks, Eric, for having us. Awesome. Ryan, why don't we start with you? What's your background? How did you get into crypto? And why are you work what are you working on at Mythos Capital? Yeah. So I you know, I, I would say that uh, I kind of it, it was a one-two combo punch that really brought me into into crypto, like two kind of catalyzing events. The, the first was in 2014. I had just got done selling a healthcare technology startup. And my business partner I was working with, we were working for the choir at the time. He tells me he's been mining Bitcoin, like in his house. And he says he has no customers, no employees to deal with, and he's generating revenue like every single day. So we just come off of a, you know, a marathon five-year startup uh, thing. And, and all of that sounded really interesting and really good. So uh, I wanted to check out you know, this Bitcoin thing, what it, what it was all about, try to understand it. And that was Thanksgiving weekend of 2014. So I ended up spending the entirety of Thanksgiving like in between you know, hanging out with family, doing the turkey thing trying to research everything I could about Bitcoin. I watched a documentary, The Rise of Bitcoin. I read uh, Andreas is Mastering Bitcoin book that recently come out. I, I you know, found out about this whole Mt. Gox thing. Uh, I basically slept four hours the entire weekend and tried to catch up on the last five years of Bitcoin history. The process that created you know, paper wallets and exchanges. And by Sunday evening, I remember it, looking over and telling my wife, like, this Bitcoin thing is phenomenal. On Monday, I'm going to tell my boss I'm leaving and going all in on, on crypto, on Bitcoin in, in particular. Of course, she looked at me like I was crazy. But you know, the next morning came around and some of the, the uh, excitement had worn off a little bit. And I, I figured the best thing I could do with crypto, at least at, at this point, was to do sort of the Bitcoin thing, the, the main use case for Bitcoin, which is uh, to, to hodl. So that was the first piece. The, the second kind of event and catalyst for me happened in, in 2016. Uh, so I was still in the enterprise healthcare tech space, and I started hearing murmurs of blockchain, not Bitcoin, particularly for enterprise healthcare software. You know, that was coming from you know, Gartner, coming from sort of the industry, and there's this notion that, hey, you know, blockchain was going to completely obviate databases. We were going to have electronic healthcare records in the blockchain that it was going to solve healthcare interoperability, all of these things. So I started investigating it. And the net of my investigation was really like, I didn't see a lot there. Uh, I saw sort of a lot of vapor. I saw a lot of hype, but I didn't see use cases being fulfilled. But in the process, I did found, find out about this incredibly interesting project called Ethereum. And I dove into that. And the, and the realization from exploring Ethereum was that Money is just one app of many possible applications, and that the innovation that uh, I saw with Bitcoin was an innovation around digital scarcity and digital trust. And Ethereum could actually make those things uh, programmable. It could make money programmable in a, in a deeper way, even than Bitcoin. So that, like for me, was a realization that that this was really the next phase of of software eating the world. Uh, and I was all in at that point. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum 
were kind of the two catalysts to, to sort of bring me in. So that, that was the journey. And what I decided to do with, with that is jump into the industry by making kind of a 10-year bet, right? So the 10-year the, the bet or the idea is that this, this transformation to a new money and this kind of web 3.0 framework would uh, happen over the course of decades. And so a 10-year bet is that simply if you hold cryptocurrencies that become money, you never need to exit to fiat. Instead, the world will just build its way to you. Financial services will build their way to you. And so I thought that the best way, essentially, to, to take that bet and to enter crypto and to do something in the space was to launch Mythos, which is a crypto asset investment company, not a hedge fund, but an uh, investment company. It's like a holding company for crypto assets. And then focus on two things in the crypto space uh, that I think we'll get into. The first is money and which crypto assets are becoming money. And the second is is this thing called medallions, which I call medallions, which are kind of work tokens or utility tokens. So hopefully we've been a chance to get into both of those things. Why not a hedge fund? Why is that not the structure? Yeah, so why not a hedge fund? It's it's because um, you know I want to do this thing in, in kind of decades, and I think that um, good crypto asset bets and good bets on money will will take decades to sort of pan out. the The challenge with a hedge fund structure and sort of LPs is they're looking for uh, monthly and quarterly and even annual sort of returns. And that's not the type of uh, structure that, that I thought, at least for me, was conducive to kind of the 10-year bet. Uh, I didn't want to be beholden to a set of LPs for a kind of short-term gains and short-term ROI. So that's why the investment structure and the holding company structure made more sense for Mythos. But it's not a venture fund either. It's just a holding company. Exactly. So not a venture fund either, just a holding company. So in, in some sense, it's similar to kind of, you know, what Barry Silbertson, the digital currency group, the holding company gives us the ability to do venture investments if if we want to, uh, when that fits, but also to invest in, in crypto assets and also to launch subsidiary companies. So we have a subsidiary company that's uh, doing work in the the staking as a service world, kind of the mining 2.0 world that executes around our medallions thesis, which we can get into more. Should that be a lot more common that people apply your structure of a holding company rather than a venture fund or, or hedge fund? Is that Are those not the right structures for, for crypto, do you believe? I think it really depends, right? So I, I think that the challenge for me in sort of launching a, a, a crypto fund, to be honest, is I, I couldn't honestly look in the face of, of LPs and tell them that I was able to outperform a blanket investment in neo money crypto assets, things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, potentially Zcash and, and Monero. You know, so taking a, a two and twenty or a two and thirty fee on you know neo money type investments just you know didn't make sense from a structure perspective. It wasn't aligning me to kind of long term what what I think uh, our investors are, are are after. So yeah, I think I think it it should be more common or it could be more common. And, I, and actually, I think there are a number of firms that are you know executing in this way, kind of a Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway style of crypto asset holding company. They're just not the ones that are super visible because you know they're not the ones that are you know, they're, they're not the ones that are actively advertising. Cool. We'll, we'll come back to some, some, you know, money medallions later. Uh, Dan, can you give a bit, bit about your background and what Vision Hell's working on? 
Sure. I just want to start off by uh, no, saying what we probably should have led with in the call is uh, everything that we do say here today is, of course, our own opinions and not investment advice. And uh, nothing here should be taken anyway as a uh, general solicitation. Uh, so uh, with that out of the way, you know, Eric, again, thank you for having me here today. I'm happy to get started. My background is mostly in traditional finance. I uh, started my career in valuation and transaction advisory. I eventually developed a focus for structured product valuation. You know, these are your, your credit derivatives, asset-backed securities, mortgage servicing rights, and uh, various other kinds of capital structure solutions. So while that uh, broadened my analytical capabilities, I found myself wanting to transition from the role of an analyst to the role of an of a, uh, investor. So uh, in late 2016, I joined Citigroup on behalf of their pension fund, where I co-managed a, uh, at the time it was a large portfolio of various allocations to managers in the private equity, the hedge fund, and the venture capital markets. Shortly after joining Citigroup, this is uh, late 2016, I started to fall down the crypto rabbit hole. I was uh, I was hearing buzzwords like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and uh, I became extremely curious, and I didn't understand what was going on, especially because I don't have a engineering or a tech background. But as I began to understand the implications of these emerging technologies, I started to feel like the world was uh, essentially about to be turned upside down on its head and spun sideways. And I just became completely captivated with this new technological paradigm shift. So I spent a lot of time thinking about where I would fit in this uh, developing ecosystem. Given that I'm not an engineer or uh, I'm certainly not a tech entrepreneur, I realized that I, uh, I couldn't build this future directly, but I uh, nonetheless wanted to be a part of contributing to the building of this future in some way. In early 2018, I ended up joining Masai as a uh, volunteer. For those not familiar with Masai, it's a pretty exciting project in the uh, space that is focused on creating an open source data library that is promoting transparency and uh, smarter decision making. And they're also working on building a token curated registry, which uh, we're happy to touch on uh, later. But that just got me deeper and deeper into uh, the crypto space in the network. And through networking, I met my partner, Scott Army, who was putting together the framework to launch Vision Hell, which is a crypto asset and blockchain-focused fund of funds. Scott and I, we felt our skill sets were complementary, and uh, we essentially view it as our duty in this developing, developing ecosystem to be a bridge between the legacy world and the new one. No, we want to find the most brilliant managers in the system and finding the most brilliant entrepreneurs that are building us this brave new world. And uh, we also want to educate legacy investors with the fact that this is indeed a new asset class. Now, we want to create an avenue of opportunity for them to allocate to this new asset class by maximizing the opportunity set of money promising managers in the space while also minimizing the idiosyncratic risk of investing in one manager. So uh, that is essentially what Vision Hill is doing. That's the mission that uh, we are inspired to fulfill. You know, we are effectively trying to serve as the bridge from the old world to the new one. Cool. Let's start by talking about money as the as the killer app. Since you guys have entered the space, how have you seen the uh, the money narrative evolve, and where do you think it sits today, given where the ecosystem is as we uh, get into Q4 2018? Dan, let's start with you. Yeah, I think uh, for starters, it's important to understand that people's choices for money are largely subjective, and so there is no right or wrong choice of money, but that there are, however, consequences to choices. 
So for anyone that read Safedine Amos's book, The Bitcoin Standard, he essentially makes the case that if you look at the history of money, there is a long history of technologies performing the functions of money from primitive systems of trading things like, like limestones and seashells to various types of metals to coins, the, uh, the gold standard that ended in the 1900s and then today where we have modern government debt. So uh, the choice of what makes the best money has historically been determined by the technological realities of societies that are shaping the saleability of different goods. On top of that, I think it's also important to note that uh, if you look through our human history, you know, we've always been able to create substantial wealth, but uh, we've had to rely on others to help us protect that wealth. So uh, with these emergent technologies that have defensive attributes you know, and individual sovereignty, we can have a new paradigm shift where we can protect our wealth without having to trust others. I think to answer your question about the Keller app, now I think uh, so far what we've seen in 2018 is the emergent bifurcation of a decentralized internet and a decentralized financial system, which I would argue are both serving two entirely separate functions. Let's start with the decentralized financial system. What does that look like for you, Dan? Sure. So if you look at the financial markets today, you know, you've essentially got the, uh, the central banks, which are work directly with the government. So if you were to envision this as a stack, you know, you can think of the central banks as a base layer. On top of those central banks, you know, the next layer is the investment banks, the commercial banks and the retail banks. So on the investment and commercial bank inside, you've got a whole stack of capital markets above that. You know, that the equity markets, the private equity and the public equity markets, you've got your debt markets, you've got your derivative markets, you've got your gold markets and so on and so forth. On the other side, you've got the retail banking layer, which, you know, transcends to checking savings accounts, you've got mortgages and loans, you've got uh, debit and credit cards and various kinds of peer-to-peer financial solutions. You know, this is uh, your PayPal, your Memo, your Apple Pay, etc. So, you know, when you look at this whole stack, you know, this whole quote-unquote money stack, you realize that the total money supply in the world, when you consider all these categories across the M1, M2, and M3 money supplies, is approximately somewhere in the ballpark of 80 to $90 trillion, give or take. And thus, you know, there is a case being made that Bitcoin and other money protocol contenders can potentially re-architect this financial system, even if that happens in multiple layers of evolutions. So when it comes to the killer app discussion, this quote-unquote money stack that I just walked through is really what many people believe is poised for tremendous disruption. This can be powered by sound money, you know, something like uh, potentially Bitcoin that many believe is designed to be able to retain value across time, across space, and across scale. But it could also be powered by a programmable money, you know, something that you can program how, when, and where money moves, especially, uh, you know, with things like wills and trusts and escrow agreements, you can essentially automate uh, how those money, how, how, the, how that kind of money is governed. You know, these could also, this could all also converge for all I know. So it remains to be seen how this all plays out. Ryan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that money framework that Dan is talking about is uh, really useful. I do think that money is the killer app for blockchain right now. I mean, like, I, I have kind of a, a, you know, controversial thought on this topic. It's that Bitcoin and Ethereum have massive upside potential, you know, both of them. And it, it, it's weird to say that that's actually controversial, but, but it is. And I think it, it is partially because of the tribalism that we see in this space and sort of the maximalist culture that we see in, the, in this space where, 
you know, it has to be only one money. And this is the the one true only path to becoming a, a money. And I think there's a, a maximalist hubris just in general of, of anyone who's a maximalist for any type of asset. Um, and we definitely see that sometimes in the, in the Bitcoin maximalist community, where there's this idea that the, the magic of, of memeing money into existence, and that's really what we're doing. We're, we're memeing a money into existence. But the idea that that only works for Bitcoin. And I'd make the argument that that same you know, concept can work for other crypto assets as well. And in particular, you know, crypto assets like, like Ethereum. So you know, I, I kind of think through of, of which of these assets will, will become money. And, and to me, it, there's sort of a, a pragmatic test that we can apply that, that maybe works a bit better than this idea of maximalism that the, the emergent money has to have a certain hardness or soundness or, you know, Austrian ethos. Uh, and the pragmatic test is really this, is, it's, is the crypto asset being used as money? Because it's, if it's being used as money, that's evidence that it is in the process of becoming money. And I think like that pragmatic test isn't applied enough to assets like Ethereum, for instance. And when I say money use, I know there's a way to define it as kind of, you know, is it a store of value? Is it a medium of exchange of the unit of account? Uh, that's important. I, I also think of it just as, you know, what are the basic functions of, of money for an individual or a business? Well, they want to they hold it. They want to save it. They want to spend it. They might want to loan with it. They wanna, might want to borrow some of it, invest or, or trade. And, and certainly, you know, there's there's the case to be made that you know, Bitcoin is fulfilling some of those objectives. You know, people are certainly holding it in some limited way. That they're also you know spending it and and loaning it and, and borrowing it. And I also see evidence of that with with assets like Ethereum. So if you look at Ethereum's use cases in something like ICOs, well, you know, there it's being held inside of a an ICO balance statement. It's being spent to purchase the the ICO. If you look at something like like Maker. Ethereum is certainly being used as a store of value and as a as a unit of account. So I I think it's important that we are open to different paths that that money might take. And in particular, kind of linking this to, to what Dan was saying, you know, there's a great article by um, JP Koning that that came out last week about the money stack, and Dan described it it really well, where you've got like on one side, on the traditional side, you've got you know, central banks at the bottom of the stack, and then you've got you know, you know, banks building on that, and then you've got fintech. And on the crypto side, you've got this parallel world where you've got crypto money forming the base layer, and then crypto banks and, and some sort of crypto fintech on top. I almost wonder if the, the crypto asset that, that wins the money use case will be the one that wins across the full money stack. Like it executes at all layers of the stack. And I see, for instance, where something like Bitcoin has advantages at the bottom layer with kind of money soundness. But the second layer, they're going to have to execute a whole banking service and, and financial services uh, community around that. And, you know, that could either be centralized or that could be decentralized. Uh, so we might see a, a centralized form of crypto banks like Coinbase, like Binance, or even you know traditional banks come into the, the crypto space, uh, and that's where I see really you know Ethereum and assets that you know, crypto networks that can be programmed have a smart contract beside to them as as having a potential advantage because they can execute a you know second base layer as 
in, in a decentralized way. The, the the second layer, the banking layer, can be protocols uh, like Dharma. It can be kind of an open finance bank like like Maker. And so I think this programmability is an important aspect of of uh, money. Uh, I absolutely see that there's a path to becoming money on the Bitcoin side of things. But I also think that there's, uh, you know, non-zero probability that something else emerges like a like a programmable form of money that just starts to own all three layers of the stack and execute against that strategy. What is the money case for, for Ethereum? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that. It's, it's the ability for Ethereum to own the full stack, you know, top to bottom. I think Ethereum's advantage comes back to programmability. Uh, I don't think Ethereum is trying to become the hardest money. I don't think it's trying to beat Bitcoin at its own you know, gold type game. It's just just has to be hard enough. And I, I like to think of Ethereum, the network, as almost like, like kind of an economy, right? So you think of something like Ether, and that's similar to you know US dollars. You think of Ether, the network, as similar to, to, to the US as, as kind of a, a, a whole economy. And the protocols that the decentralized pr- financial protocols that Ethereum is building on top, these smart contracts, this is really the banking layer. These are the financial services that allow people to use kind of that base money layer, which is Ether right now, to lend, to borrow, to trade, to you know, raise funds, to invest. And then you know, with Ethereum, for instance, we're seeing all of these, these standards that are emerging with 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 network effects. So we've got ERC you know, standards for loans, for digital products, for tokens, for for Delaware corporations, for uh, recurring subscriptions. So I really think the the case for money is is open finance. Is that by you know financializing uh, Ethereum as a as a money, particularly in this second layer of open finance, all of these protocols that you know, come to be used, uh, Ethereum could have an advantage other over other crypto assets. You know, it's some people try to kind of compare Ethereum to Bitcoin, but like they often make the mistake of assuming both are in the same state of completion. And I, I would think I would argue that Ethereum is it's got a long roadmap and that, that presents some execution risk, but there's also some upside there. So Ethereum is maybe 30% complete in its roadmap, whereas Bitcoin is, is closer to 80%. What you have to do is you have to kind of look at the, the final states of these two crypto projects and then discount by execution you know, probability. So I think Ethereum's case for money is really comes down to a program of money with Ether as its currency. And we may see almost a, a bifurcation of blockchains that are focused on money, you know, almost money mainnets, and side chains and other blockchains that host social dApps and uh, other decentralized Web 2.0 style dApps. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw you know, mainnets like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like Zcash really being the most secure main nets for hosting money and other blockchains, uh, side chains, things like Cosmos, things like Polkadot, things like Plasma, things like EOS, uh, used more for social dApps, you know, things that, that don't require the, the security of a money main net. Let's zoom out for a second here, because this is sort of contrary to the uh, the fat money thesis, uh, or somewhat contrary, which, which is in vogue right now, which sort of says, you know, that Ethereum has, has uh, suboptimal properties 
you know, to Bitcoin as it relates to, as it relates to money and that money converges onto one winner and Euro's winner, winner take all. Where is the fat money thesis incorrect in your view? Like what, what is the crux of the difference of opinion that you, you guys have? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start on that. So I think the fat money thesis is actually correct. You know, it, the, the, the mistake that it makes is it discounts Ethereum or other, another crypto asset frankly, ability to become money. I think that, that many of the same properties that make uh, Ethereum sound or, or hard or a good money also apply to Ethereum. So the things that, that you know, Bitcoin purports, you know, 98% say of, of those things could be applied to Ethereum. And then Ethereum, for instance, has some advantages from a programmability perspective from the ability to create financial protocols on top that might financialize Ether as an asset uh, even quicker than Bitcoin. So I actually subscribe to Fat Money's protocol. I just think that we should be open to more than Bitcoin as a Fat Money. Or are you saying that Bitcoin and Ethereum can also be fat, can both be big money winners? Or you're saying one can win, but maybe it's Ethereum and that's where they're wrong? Yeah, I think that there could be multiple winners. So, you know, there, there may be a power law, but I guess my perspective is I'm not sure that we'll see one money winner, at least in our lifetime. I mean, this might take place over decades or, or, or even centuries. You know, once, once Bitcoin replaces gold as a store of value, which I, I think it can, and I think it, it will, at least a large market cap of, of gold, then in our lifetimes, we'll, we'll have already seen gold kind of fall by the wayside and be disrupted by uh, this new store of value. I think it'll take a long time for a single store of value winner or money winner to you know kind of rise to the top and accrue all of the value. So I don't even know if we'll see a single crypto asset that's uh, you know a single store of value in our lifetimes. There there may be a number of competitors vying for the top space for decades to come. Well, I'm going to live to be a few hundred years old. I don't know about you guys, so I'll uh, <laughs> I'll be seeing it. But you know, let's dig into that for a sec. So you know, if, if Jimmy Song or Murad or you know Fat Money's disciple was here, what would they say? They'd say something along the lines of that you know Bitcoin is superior because it's 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 actually decentralized or it's far more decentralized than Ethereum and and any others where there's a central entity or a person who has undue influence over the over the protocol. And, you know, that's why it's, it's so game changing relative to, to fiat and, and others. Where would you differ from that or, or disagree with that or, or articulate the case for how Ethereum can beat Bitcoin? Yeah. I, I guess I just don't buy that it's, it's that different. I mean, you know, both have supply schedules, both have known inflation rates. You know, Bitcoin right now is around 4.5%. Um, after the next Ethereum hard fork, Ethereum will be floating around 4%. Bitcoin's total supply is managed by you know, social consensus, executed, of course, you know, by code. But ultimately, it's the, the nodes and the users of the network that decide on an ongoing basis what the final supply is. I, I don't think it's that much different than Bitcoin or at least or than Ethereum, excuse me, or at least I think Ethereum has enough sound properties and enough certainty in its supply that it can be effectively used as money. And then I think Ethereum could beat Bitcoin, not from an Austrian sound money perspective, but just by virtue of, of it being more programmable. There's things that you can do on Ethereum that you just can't do very well on Bitcoin at its current state. So uh, for instance, 
using Ether as a fundraising tool in ICOs. You know, Ethereum is really positioned as kind of the reserve currency for fundraising, just given that that use case of a, you know, a, a fundraising token on top of uh, Ethereum. The MakerDAO project, for instance, where 0.5% of ETH is being collateralized inside of a Maker smart contract and being used essentially as a store of value to issue loans against. Those are all new use cases that are different than kind of digital gold. And those new use cases might bring in more users to the platform and might financialize Ether as a currency faster than Bitcoin. And it remains to be seen. Yeah, but don't you think that Vitalik has any you know more con- more control over anyone in the in the Bitcoin ecosystem has and isn't sort of the uh, what happened with the Bitcoin fork like give you know encouragement that people can't even the most powerful people together if they come together they can't change Bitcoin unilaterally. Yeah, I look. I think that you know, what happened with the Bitcoin fork it does speak to the strong social consensus, and I, I do view that as as bullish for. Bitcoin's digital gold fixed supply permit uh, case. I do think that Vitalik's role in you know setting monetary policy is uh, way overplayed. I think the same social consensus dynamics that exist in in Bitcoin, maybe to a lesser extent, but certainly to to a strong extent, exist in the Ethereum community. I, I guess I just I, I don't buy this idea that that Bitcoin. Is is sufficiently harder or more sound uh, than Ethereum. And I, I'm not sure that how much that that matters either, right? So like it has to be sufficiently sound, but do we need 21 million to, to fixate on kind of that final fixed supply forever? Is that even the right fixed supply? Will at some point the Bitcoin community when the the mining rewards kind of dry up, will, will they move to create some additional inflation in their network? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's all up to social con- consensus, certainly. But you know, all of that's kind of going to play out. What's what's most important, I think, right now is existing use as a money. And so, when it comes down to it, I I certainly see Bitcoin being used as a money, things like holding, and in some some limited ways for for lending and you know for spending that sort of thing. And I also absolutely, using this pragmatic test, see Ethereum being used as a money. So it's being used inside of the, the Ethereum co- economy and decentralized financial protocols and you know, decentralized banks. On you know, It's being held on balance sheets of, of ICOs who haven't held it. So, I mean, if you're using that test, I think Ethereum like exceeds Bitcoin in its actual usage as a money up to this point. Totally. I agree. And the last question on money, then we'll get to the internet. But I think, you know, the thing Austrians would say, or fat money people would say is something like along the lines of, hey, you know, money emerges first as a collectible, then as a store of value, then as a, you know, medium of exchange and that happens over, over a long period of time. And you can't really skip those steps. If, if I think I'm under, if I'm understanding the argument correctly. So why is it so important that it's, that it's used as money before it's achieved any of the other, other steps? Or, or do you disagree with the, the premise? And if so, what's yours? I, I disagree with the premise. So I don't think it has to be sequential. I don't think it has to go from step one, store of value, step two, medium of exchange, step three, unit of account. And, you know, not until it's achieved one, can it go to kind of the, the next area. I think all three of those things uh, can happen in tandem. So, you know, it could be used as a crypto asset could be used as a, as a store of value in 
some limited niche in some limited way, while it's also being used as a medium of exchange in some limited way, while it's also being used as a unit of account. And when you actually look at how these assets are being used, it's, it's sort of what you see in the Ethereum community, in the Ethereum economy, what you see is Ether as a, a currency is being used as a store of value. So you know, folks hold it in their, their balance sheet. They're, they're holding it in a similar way that they're holding Bitcoin because they expect it to appreciate. Being used as the medium of exchange inside of this this DAP ecosystem, inside of these financial protocols, and it's being used as a unit of account. If I want to buy an ICO token, or if I want to issue some some DAI using the Maker platform, I need to use Ethereum as the unit of account to do that. And so, all of those things can happen at once, and sort of like it can be a, a much more iterative process. It doesn't have to be linear, and that's I think what we're seeing. Are you excited about any other vertical as a chance to be, you know, the winning money? Yeah, I, you know, I'd say I'm excited about um, a number of different protocols, uh, but I, I do think that there are probably, you know, five, maybe seven, being generous, uh, current contenders that have actual demonstrated use as money. So, you know, Bitcoin certainly being one, Ethereum being another. I think some of the privacy coins like Monero and, and Zcash have some potential here. As well, and I, I'm super interested in seeing what some of the newly emerging crypto platforms do. You know, will they start to be used as money inside of their economies, and will those economies grow? And will will they start to take the shape of uh, some sort of reserve currency that's uh, used in the wider crypto ecosystem? So far, I haven't seen many projects that have hit mainnet besides some of the ones that I've mentioned that I think have those characteristics. But I'm like I'm looking for them, and and don't think any of this is written. I don't think you know it's it's written in the stars that that Bitcoin is going to be the winning money. I don't think it's similarly inevitable that Ethereum is the winning money. I would just rank you know those probabilities higher than than much of what I've seen so far. Cool. Let's transition over to uh, decentralized internet or uh, or Web three. What does that look like? Maybe Dan, we can start with you. Yeah, so uh, if you look at the internet revolution over the last two decades or so, no, we've seen physical internet infrastructure serve as a base, as a base layer with protocols such as, uh, you know, TCPIP, SMTP, HTTP, DNS, and so on that were built above that base layer. Above that, no, we witnessed a tremendous tremendous value creation in various platforms. So examples of uh, these platforms, you know, if you look at something like uh, mobile solutions, you know, uh, you have iOS and you have Android, you know, these operating systems allowed companies like Apple and Google to accrue substantial value. You know, I think, don't quote me on these numbers, but last I checked, Apple, you no, know, the market cap is uh, over a trillion dollars at this point. Google is, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of uh, 800 billion. Another example of a platform is carrier services. You know, this is uh, your Verizon, your AT, you sprint, you know, collectively these carrier service providers have market caps in the hundreds of billions of dollars. E-commerce is another example. Here you've got Amazon that uh, is in excess of a trillion dollars in market cap, eBay, Groupon, you have Jet.com. You know, th- these are essentially, if you look at a stack, you know, layer two slash middleware that enabled um projects set to essentially build to reach end consumers. So uh, above that, you essentially have the application there. By applications, now if you look at transportation, you've got uh, Uber, you've got Lyft. Uber, I think, uh, last I checked, is ballpark uh, market cap around uh, $70 billion. You have social media. So uh, this is your Instagram, your Facebook, your Snapchat, your Twitter. No, those, those companies 
accrued hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. You also have peer-to-peer payment solutions. You know, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but you have things like Venmo, you have Apple Pay, you have PayPal, you have messaging services, you know, peer-to-peer platforms like Telegram and WhatsApp. So, you know, the, the point of that uh, walkthrough is really just to show that uh, the evolution of uh, the web one to the web two that many people refer to this internet revolution as has created the ability for many companies to create and capture substantial value. So what we have now is essentially the evolution of a so-called web three paradigm. So uh, what that means is now kind of like alongside the existing web one and web two stack, you have this emerging you have this emerging decentralized network stack that is uh, developing. So above the base layer blockchain protocols uh, that Brian mentioned earlier that uh, have en- enabled uh, you know, digital economies to, build, to be built above them, you have middleware protocols that are provisioning functionality for things like finance contracts, decentralized exchanges, uh, curation markets, you know, that's a token curated registry, and so on and so forth. You also have uh, emerging resource marketplaces. These are essentially enabling the exchange of digital commodities. You know, examples of digital commodities are things like uh, storage, like compute power, network bandwidth, memory, and so on. Finally, above all of that, you know, if you look at the layer three, you know, you've got uh, the emergence of uh, these so-called decentralized applications. These could be, you know, examples of uh, decentralized social media. You know, these could be your decentralized autonomous organizations, you know, your prediction marketplaces, and of course, uncensorable value transfer in the form of uh, peer-to-peer marketplaces uh, that Ryan touched on earlier. So I think in, in some, you know, I think that's how we are envisioning the creation of this new decentralized internet stack or Web3, quote-unquote. Of course, however, I think it's also important to mention that uh, a lot of these projects that Ryan mentioned uh, also have yet to deliver on their promises. Yeah, awesome. Ryan, anything you would add to that? Yeah, so, you know, I... I... I think it's right. Like my perspective on on Web three is that it's probably going to be less a, of a disruption of, of Web two, and more of a disruption of the things that weren't disrupted by Web two or Web one or the internet in general in the first place. So I, I think we somewhat go on a tangent when we talk about kind of you know a decentralized Facebook beating Facebook or a decentralized Uber beating Uber or. Uh, even to some extent, uh, a decentralized AWS, you know, beating AWS. I think Web two is going to, to to hold its moat and hold its place for a, for a long time. I think what's going to happen first in the Web three movement is we're going to start to do things with this digital scarcity innovation that we've created and this decentralized trust innovation that we've created that like we we just haven't seen in Web one and Web two. And money is one of those applications, as we've been talking about. So I tend to think some of the things in Web3 that, that will eventually come, but that are underrated are, you know, things like dApps, you know, and I'm talking about kind of, you know, social media type of, of dApps or your replacement for, you know, Web2 is just a decentralized version of, of that Web2. And I think the things that are that are more underrated, but that fit in the Web3 paradigm are this idea of money, this idea of, of open finance, you know, privacy coins. And I do think in the long run, we are also going to have successful utility tokens and utility networks as part of Web3. I think that this this first round of, of ICOs will be much improved in the next round where we'll have 
you know, you know tokens that have uh, investor protection but are also still native uh, to the blockchain. I think you know DEXs uh, are maybe a bit early, but but those will come too. All of those things are are going to be part of this this Web three you know movement. And you know, I guess the thing I I would just reiterate is I don't think we necessarily have to you know, create a line in the sand and make a distinction on whether this crypto thing is, is money 2.0 or whether it's web three. Uh, I think it can be both. And I think the, the money paradigm fits really well with, with web three and this innovation of web three, which is digital scarcity. I think those types of money and financial use cases will be the ones that we'll execute on first. One thing I would add to Ryan's last point about the money paradigm and going back to what we touched on earlier with the ability for Ethereum to uh, eventually turn into uh, no money is the fact that these, if you look at these decentralized peer-to-peer marketplaces and you think about this next generation uncensorable value transfer, you know, it's it's not crazy to think that it can take the form of many things, not just money. And uh, it can also exist on top of these emerging decentralized internet stacks. What I mean by that is if you go back to monetary history, no, the simplest way for people to exchange value is to exchange what they believe are valuable goods and services with one another. No, this is essentially barter. And barter historically has only been practical in small circles with only a few goods and services because of our physical um, challenges. And as the world has become much, much larger and uh, much more sophisticated, barter has historically become highly impractical. So uh, as a result, uh, human society needed to develop a placeholder that could enable us to transact across time, across space, and across scale with, with a placeholder that can also retain value across different generations over time. So uh, this is essentially the core of Austrian economics. And I think uh, what we have here is a new digital global economy that is emerging with new opportunities for individuals to specialize in the production of new decentralized goods and services with the ability to also exchange them frictionlessly without many people actively participating in these incentive networks. Now, when you when you couple that with uh, the fact that these blockchain networks are simply ledgers, no, they're simply databases that are keeping track of who owes who what. We can essentially have what we believe are valuable goods and services being exchanged with a running tally of those goods, services, and favors that are being exchanged. And as a result, we could potentially see a new generation that redefines money and barter as we used to know it. Now, I think at the end of the day, we we really don't know how this is going to develop because it's still so early. But to Ryan's point about being open-minded, no, I think we should at least be cognizant that this is a possibility. Ryan, uh, let me get back to your point you mentioned about how Money 2.0 and Web 3.0 can can go exist. How do they intersect with each other, support each other? You know, some people say, well, if we had less people working on Web 3.0, we'd have more people working on, you know, Bitcoin or, or Money 2.0. Like, how do you, you know, less people raising money for ICOs, more people, you know, working on like, you know, underlying like infrastructure. How do they work together and, and enable each other's rise, if at all? From my perspective, I think Web, web 3.0 can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think one of the the core pieces of web 3.0 is actually that money fits under that. So web 3.0 at its core brought two primary innovations. You know, the first is digital scarcity. So, I mean, in, you know, kind of in, in the old internet world, if you copied and pasted something, then it would be replicated with digital scarcity. 
uh, obviously, once someone receives uh, a crypto asset, uh, they, they permanently own it, and the, the other person doesn't. That's a core innovation. The second is decentralized trust. And so much of Web 3.0 kind of falls out around that, but, but I think one of the core apps of Web 3.0 is actually money, is actually kind of an open finance ecosystem. And I think we'll, we'll see over the coming years less of a focus on decentralizing everything that, that we created in Web 2.0 and more a focus on you know, the things that Web 3.0 uniquely enables with digital scarcity and, and decentralized trust and use cases around killer apps like money, killer apps, even like NFTs, which are digital products. So these are you know game items or other items that can exchange hands and can be represented on, on the blockchain. I think it's just somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction to look at kind of the last trend and try to think that this this new trend will be exactly like the previous, only with some modifications. When, when from a first principles perspective, the core innovation of, of Web3 is really digital scarcity. And so apps that use that that killer feature are going to be the ones that succeed. So you know, I guess I would ask, you know, how, how you think about Web 3.0 and sort of how that's maybe different than Money 2.0 or how others you're seeing others define it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think people are, it's more just like a lack of resource. Like there's not that many engineers in the space. And I think people are seeing or are lamenting the rise of opportunism or, you know, financial opportunism where everyone's trying to build their own, you know, only build a stable coin if it can make them rich or only, you know, like build their own blockchain because they don't want to build on top of Ethereum or try to start their own project because they don't want to work on an existing. It seems that there's not that many people working on things that like, unless they will <laughs> can receive massive upside in, in the process. And it, it, I don't know if that's overall like the best macro position we want to. Yeah. I, I agree. And that, that's kind of, you know, cast a shadow over web, web 3.0 is sort of shady ICOs, you know, people raising funds and becoming millionaires who, you know, aren't actually building anything. But, but obviously this is something that happened in the early days of the internet and early days of web 1.0 when, you know, somebody could strap a com onto their business plan and, you know, <laughs> suddenly it's, it's worth millions and it's kind of a, a real product. So. I think that th- this phase will pass uh, and maybe we're, you're kind of in sort of the, the depths of a bear market that could shake a lot of these things out. And on the other side of that, I think we'll see a, a Web 3.0 that is much more focused on the, you know, the, the new things that digital scarcity can kind of bring to the market. I think the next wave of ICOs, for instance, are going to have much more investor protections. I think investors will will demand it. I think uh, we'll see a lot of innovation on that front. And once this bubble bursts fully, I think we'll have a much healthier market on the other side. I want to uh, transition. We've been talking a lot about money. We've been talking about internet. I want to talk about uh, medallions, You know, the other part of your money medallions thesis. Ryan, and it relates to this concept of uh, generalized mining or mining 2.0, which sort of, you know, no, new way to participate in, in networks, in decentralized networks. Can you give a background of, of this idea and, how, and where you're most excited about its, its applications? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our, our simple framework, and there's lots going on in crypto, but we focus on kind of two things. You know, one are crypto assets that can become money, which we talked about. And the other is what we call medallions. And, you know, other folks call these utility po- tokens or work tokens. To me, uh, a really helpful framework is actually thinking of them as, as taxicab medallions. So like a taxicab medallion, in order to, to work inside of the network, in 
order to provide a service for the network, you actually have to own these these assets, these tokens, these medallions. They have scarcity, so there's some level of fixed supply, like like taxicab medallions. They don't necessarily have monetary properties, so uh, they're not a, a store of value per se, and they can be fairly easily valued based on you know a DCF method, the discounted cash flow method of you know what working in the network is going to produce as a yield. So it's similar to you know if you're a taxi cab driver, you you buy a taxi cab medallion for for some price, expecting to work in that taxi cab and to earn a, a DCF yield on top of it. So uh, one of the mistakes I see is that a lot of folks are are still confused, and even investors are confused in, in mistaking medallions for money. So you know some. Assets that uh, I've seen out there that uh, don't aren't being used as money, don't necessarily have monetary properties, probably don't have a, a chance in hell of becoming money, actually have monetary value. They're kind of you know expecting that it could become the next Bitcoin or the next Ethereum, and really these are just taxicab medallions, right? And so, like you would never expect to go into a New York City cafe and use a taxicab medallion to buy coffee. You wouldn't store a taxicab medallion you know, in the bank or under your mattress either. And like, so with medallions, with these work tokens, as the network becomes more valuable, the interesting thing is these medallions become more valuable too. So if you look at like history of, of taxi medallions in New York City in the 1960s and 70s, 70s, these were first issued and you could buy one for you know $3,000, $5,000. After, since that time, obviously, taxicab medallions, uh, you know, increased in price due to demand for yellow caps and due to the New York City network growing. And so, in 2013, that same medallion would cost 1.3 million or so. It's interesting because because the opposite is true too. Competitors came into the market in the form of Uber, in the form of of Lyft. They disrupted. The network value of taxicab medallions and caused it to decrease in value. So, looking at stats in, in 2017, a medallion would be worth from like 1.3, 1.5 million. It was discounted to about 150k, uh, an average medallion in New York City. So, Uber completely disrupted the network. And I think you'll see similar things with tokens, with work tokens in in the crypto network as. More people use the network uh, as the network itself expands in value. The native tokens themselves, the work tokens, will become worth more because they'll be producing higher yields and, and higher uh, DCF. And I, I guess how this links with with generalized mining or the mining 2.0 term is is really like mining 2.0. All it is 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 using these tokens, using these medallions to operate taxis. So that's what I think of mining 2.0 companies is they're taking the asset and then using it in the network. And, you know, hedge funds and, and such, they, they buy taxicab medallions, for instance, but the, the real purpose of these things is to be used in the network. So if you're a fund and or you're an investor and you're, you're buying medallions, but you're not actively using them, it's, it's a little bit hot. So I, I do think that the idea of active ecosystem participation operators Taking these these work tokens and actually using them in the network is going to become more and more popular, and we'll see more investors uh, who've traditionally maybe provided value through just just capital or governance or deal flow or that sort of thing. They'll become they'll become community builders. They'll become stakers. They'll become validators. They'll operate nodes in the network. 
I, I like this term, at least when, when we think about our, our purpose, because you know, Mythos uh, operates a, a staking service. We think of ourselves as, as keepers of the network. I think Ryan Zer from Polychain coined that phrase. And he, he, I think, took it from, from the Maker Project and really like it. So keepers as in guardians of the network as in tenders of the network, it's it's more than just providing a utility service to the network. You're, you're more, unlike with Bitcoin mining, where maybe you're just providing hash power, I think validators and stakers are charged with actually tending for the community and building up the community and, and maintaining its health. So I think we'll see the emergence of, of these things. I also think we'll, we'll see the emergence of delegate work entities so these are, are groups that maybe some investor with the, these work tokens, with these medallions, might outsource their, their work to, essentially delegate their work to, uh, to a third party. And all of that's, that's new. I, I think we'll see, rather than traditional VCs and traditional investment companies pop in the space, I think we'll see a, a number of, of crypto-native companies uh, emerge with these solutions and, and deliver for the networks. Yeah, I think something I'd add to while Ryan was saying is, no, I think at the at the end of the day, it's important to think about these incentive models as a way to catalyze a community to pull together and provision a decentralized digital good or service to a network, self-organize in a specific way, and then remunerate for either the contribution of these resources or pay for specific resources on a network. So as a result, no, the incentive design is critical. If you remove the financial incentives, ecosystem participants won't be incentivized to coordinate their behavior towards the same common goal. And the result is is the network could potentially crumble. So I just want to emphasize that last point. No, I think uh, as active ecosystem participants continue to emerge in this ecosystem, no, I think incentive design, including the game theory aspect, is arguably critical to any given network's success. Totally. I mean, for people who aren't as familiar with like what staking or what validating or like dispute resolution, operating nodes, what that means, Ryan, can you give just a bit more of a technical explanation of what that what that looks like and what, what it means for, for you to own a staking service? Yeah, absolutely. So what it, what it means to own a staking service is basically uh, hosting nodes. So hosting blockchain nodes for the community and using those nodes to create blocks. So like from an infrastructure perspective, staking, providing a staking service on a network like Cosmos uh, requires us to have sort of a data center and infrastructure that supports building out these Cosmos validator nodes and protecting them from a security perspective. So protecting them from, from DDoS attacks or other nefarious uh, actors, and then constructing it in a way that's, uh, that's scalable. And so essentially, uh, folks with, with atoms, with the tokens, other holders who are not validators, uh, have the ability from, from their wallets to essentially delegate their their stake their their vote to us with that vote we then create the blocks uh receive a commission for that work and pass some of the reward back to the the, the individual or company who's uh delegating so you know with n- network rewards can vary something like cosmos it's uh, seven to twenty percent annual uh, kind of reward on top of your assets. So if you have $100 in Cosmos, Atoms, and you're staking all of them, you could expect to receive you know, between $7 and, and $20. 
in terms of uh, a reward. And then Mythos as, as the validator, whatever validator service you're using, staking service you're using, take a portion of that reward. And how do you think about it for different types of networks, whether it's proof-of-work network, proof-of-stake networks, other... Yeah, like in, in comparison to other networks, are you asking, Eric? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think you can think of it as holding a proof-of-stake coin, at least something like a, like Cosmos or, or something like you know, LivePeer, is almost like holding uh, virtual hash power. Uh, obviously, to mine on the Bitcoin network or the Ethereum network today requires you know, a ton of hash power. And holding atoms or a, a staking to- token is a is a virtualized version of that hash power. So the more you hold, the more ability uh, you have on the network to you know, receive reward and, and generate the next block. So like that's a, that's kind of a, a helpful way of of thinking about it, just as a it's, you know virtual hash power. And in both cases, of course, it requires requires capital. If I wanted to start mining in the Bitcoin network, I, it would it would require a lot of investment and equipment, you know, kind of data center infrastructure I'd need to tap into an energy source. On the proof of stake side of things, you know, the, the main investment is uh, buying the actual token itself, which represents that that hashing power. Last question on this is, you know, there's different types of uh, players uh, in networks. There's, you know, crypto funds first, you know, there's exchanges that are trying to be validators. There's pure play validators. Some of like uh, mayor is doing with chorus, uh, course one, there's, you know, custodian plus validators. Uh, sorry, that's what I meant. Uh, custodians plus validators. How do these players all work together? Can they all coexist peacefully? Is some of it zero sum? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of fragmentation and a lot of new entrants. And so we'll see, you know, players take every flavor. I think in in some cases, there will be partnerships between these. So I could see exchanges, for instance, partnering with staking service providers, because, you know, maybe they don't want to be in the business of, of servicing networks. In some cases, exchanges may enter directly. I could also see, you know, large funds and institutional investors you know, part- partnering with staking service providers as well. Uh, some will also you know, spin up their own. I I do think it requires a, a certain you know kind of specialization and competency, not not just on the technical side, but but also active community involvement. And so I think the, there will be a lot of exchanges. There will be a lot of funds and investors who just want to delegate it. They want to kind of outsource that piece yet still receive the return. So I think we'll see a lot of different forms, but ultimately we'll we'll probably also see some consolidation too. So I I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, at at the end of this, we were left with with a smaller number of staking or, you know, utility service providers on on crypto networks that just service many different networks and have achieved some economies of scale by doing that. And along along the way, I'm sure we'll see, you know, acquisitions, I'm sure we'll see partnerships, I'm sure we'll we'll see a lot of consolidation. Dan, are you starting to see, you know, fund managers employ this generalized mining strategy or actively participate in networks they invest in? 
Yeah, I think it's important to remember that many funds in this market have different strategies. So uh, you have fundamental managers that could be long only, that could be long short. On the long only side, they could be participating in public and private markets. You could have hybrids, which are combinations of the two. You have core managers, you have credit-focused managers, venture funds, and so on and so forth. So uh, not all funds have the desire or the capability to actively participate in these ecosystems. That said, uh, to your point, and uh, as Ryan nicely pointed out, the idea of supply-side services is very much an emerging strategy, and we are certainly starting to see that come to fruition with uh, some managers. I think that's only going to continue to grow over time. And I guess one last thing I'd mention is the ability for a new entrance to come in is certainly there, but it's also important to think about the second order effect of a marketplace where early adopters, early network supporters can build competitive edges. And in turn, as they delegate the work, as Brian was describing earlier, they could also uh, decide to dispose of uh, their supply side services to new entrants. So uh, you can start to see new interesting monetization strategies where uh, not active ecosystem participants create high barriers to entry and then uh, simply sell off that value capture to uh, new entrants that are trying to simply, simply replicate that business model, but just at a later stage. Ryan, you thought a bit about stablecoins. Do you want to give us your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think, you know, in this whole, you know, what is the the crypto asset that's going to become a money framework? I think stable coins are really the wild card here. You know, stability in terms of price volatility is certainly nothing that, that Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other crypto asset can provide at the minute. And it remains to be seen whether with with kind of higher market cap, higher value, uh, higher liquidity, that those assets will stabilize. I think there's some reason to believe they won't. But it's it's super interesting to me to watch stablecoins emerge, particularly those that are emerging on a you know platform like Ethereum, because it could turn out that these stablecoins actually act as kind of a a parasite at some level to the value proposition of say in the Ethereum economy of, of Ether itself. The way that could happen is is basically let's say something like like Dai from the Maker Team is successful on Ethereum. Well, currently, uh, most of the things that occur in the Ethereum ecosystem, whether it's a ICO contribution or whether it's um, a Dharma loan that's being triggered, th- those are all paid out in the Ethereum reserve currency, which is Ether. If those start to be paid out in something like DAI, then I think Ether loses in its own economy some of its moneyness. And so, you know, there, there is one world where you know, it comes to pass that the market cap of, of DAI, which is a stablecoin built on top of Ethereum, is actually a lot larger than Ether, the market cap of, of Ether itself. And you could see that happening you know, potentially with DAI or, you know, some of the algorithmic stablecoins that are launching or, you know, heck, even some of the, the centralized stablecoins could eat into Ethereum's reserve currency market share. So it's something that, like you know, I'm watching, and it, it's an interesting, you know, possibility, uh, and we'll just have to see. T- talk a bit more about what else could go wrong for Ethereum, or, or what products are in it. Yeah, I think so. I, I guess the main thing that that can go wrong for Ethereum, from my perspective, is like in the category of self-inflicted wounds. So 
you know, Ethereum is is very de- decentralized in its structure. So it operates on a uh, an open source style of development process. You know, gener- some work gets done by the Ethereum Foundation, but you know, it's mostly research work. The actual development work gets done by kind of an army of volunteers. And this is in contrast to how a competitor like Definity is building. So Definity is building, you know, from a best practices perspective of everything that that Silicon Valley has learned about software development. They're getting the best talent. They're kind of bringing them all together. They've got a very focused mission. They've got a lot of money. You know, these are employees. So Ethereum just might not be able to you know, ship fast enough. That's one of my concerns. The, the, the other concern is that the Ethereum community makes choices that diminish Ether's or hamper Ether's ability to become money. So I think like any decentralized crypto project, there, there are a lot of different factions. You know, Within the Bitcoin community, there are certainly factions of folks that thought Bitcoin should be used for you know, cash type payments, others that Think of it more as gold. Uh, Nick Carter wrote a brilliant piece on this um, recently. I think the same is true of Ethereum. And I think there is a, a faction within Ethereum that doesn't think that uh, Ether is a money or should be a money. That, that maybe, you know, Dan's barter idea uh, that he was talking about earlier, maybe that will come to pass or maybe a stable coin should actually be the money. And they might take some steps to you know, diminish kind of Ether's uh, status as money. So, Maybe Ether is not necessary for transactions uh, within the network, for instance. Maybe Ether's supply changes so that it's highly inflationary and, and like you know, decreases its ability to become a store of values. So all of these things, I think, are, are self-inflicted wounds and, and materially affect Ether's ability to become a money. Yeah, I think uh, one last thing I'd add to that is, um, you know, the, the stablecoin thesis uh, could be a temporary solution. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, we don't really know because it continues to be really early. But, you know, I think it begs the question, you know, if you look at uh, what happened in 1933 and 2008 and other financial crises throughout uh, history, you know, if and when we were to have a central banking crisis where the U.S. dollar loses its place as the global reserve currency, you know, I'm not so sure how much of a value proposition stablecoins may have, given that they are pegged to, um, you know, some kind of fiat currency as a unit of account. So it's just one thing I just want to point out when when we look at these theses, you know, it's uh, it's also important to consider the time horizon. What are your um, thoughts on uh, tokenized securities? Yeah, I guess um, quick thoughts. I, I, I think they're interesting, but not super interesting. I don't think they're game changing. So. You know, the the challenge with a, a tokenized security is that it's it's you know it's basically a wrapped legal contract, so it's not really native to the blockchain. So when I say native to blockchain, I mean you know things things like Bitcoin, things like Ethereum assets that have private keys, really bearer assets. So if I have Ethereum or Bitcoin private key, I own the asset, and that's settled on the blockchain, and that you know proves that I own the the asset. That's not true of a tokenized security. A tokenized security settles in meat space. <laughs> it settles using the legal system. And so, you know, you can kind of bring a, a foreign citizen, you know, a, a security into the blockchain space and you can kind of wrap it and like make it programmable and it, it can use some of the 
the crypto rails, if you will. And that's, that's somewhat interesting, but it will always be a, a foreign citizen so long as it's, it's settled in the legal system. And the legal system will always have ultimate say in, in power over that asset, over the, over the blockchain. So it's interesting, but you know, maybe not, not, not as interesting to me in the context of, of Web3 as, as some of these, these native tokens. Yeah, I think, you know, the case can be made that if you, if you look at tokenized securities as a, a marginal upgrade to the existing primary markets, you know, instruments like uh, public stocks and bonds, from an issuer perspective, you no, know, there could be some money made. But uh, overall, I think I agree with Ryan, it may not be the most exciting. However, I think if you also consider, you know, secondary market instruments, you no, know, not just things like uh, bankruptcy claims and you no, know, other sort, other sort of uh, distressed debt uh, securities. But if you look at the idea of trading something like a music royalty, you now I think that could be a really interesting new market development. You now, if you look at the idea of potentially being able to trade things like escrow agreements and uh, wealth and trust agreements, you know, that's all legal code that is essentially uh, governed by humans. And if you could have that automated and governed by computer networks and create a decentralized marketplace where you could buy and sell and trade these securities, that could potentially be exciting. What what sort of crypto native applications are either of you most most excited about? For me, there's a lot going on in open finance right now and sort of the decentralized finance movement. Yeah, just because I mentioned it a couple of times in this podcast, I think the most exciting application right now on Ethereum is probably the Maker project. So, you know, they've got over 56 million in stablecoin loans issued, which is amazing. Got like 0.5% of all Ethereum supply locked up in their smart contracts. They're getting ready to issue, release multi-collateral DAI, which which means other assets beyond uh, Ether can be used to collateralize the debt. It's you know it's one of those applications where. Yeah, having having used it, you, you kind of get that that like that magic feeling, like wow, this is this is really transformational. And at this point, the UI is 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 super rough, <laughs> require you know esoteric uh, in terms, but I can absolutely see it being kind of polished up and it really being a model for a an autonomous bank that operates natively on the blockchain. So super excited about that project. Yeah. And, and Ryan, you, you mentioned that you don't think daily active users are the right metric to be measuring Ethereum's progress. Say more about that? Yeah, I think that's, again, a relic of our Web 2 paradigms that we try to, you know, just port to, to Web 3. You know, daily active users is the metric for Web 2. Web 2. You know, how many, how many folks am I getting a day on my, on my social media site, my, you know, SaaS product, whatever. It's not necessarily the primary metric of web3 and i think it's 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 kind of odd that we've assumed it is um i think that the 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 primary metric of web3 is going to be things that also quantify value right so rather than daily active users maybe it's like you know daily active value how much value is you know in the the smart contracts that ethereum is is hosting and if you look at Something like, and this all makes intuitive sense because, you know, blockchains are really good for large, infrequent transactions, right? They're, they're not good for web 2.0 transactions. If you want, if you want to do a, a low value, fast transaction, then web 2 is going to be you know, the best method for you. But for high value, infrequent transactions, like getting a, a $50,000 loan from a autonomous crypto bank, Right, I, like I'm only going to interact with that smart contract 
you know, a couple of times a year, maybe if it's a long-term loan, less than that. And so the usage that matters, it's material for these sorts of smart contracts is how much value is being put in that smart contract. And is that value growing over time and at what rate? It's not how often I actually go to the MakerDAO website, you know, and, and hit the hit the smart contract itself. So I, I just think we're still kind of measuring <laughs> Web 3.0 with the web the tools of Web 2.0. And um, I think we should be looking at this from a first principles perspective instead. Totally. Uh, and the so last question here, maybe ending on a bit of a call to arms. You, you mentioned that the crypto movement is, is not right versus left, but uh, freedom versus versus authoritarian. Can you un- unpack that uh, as we close off here? Yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of folks who, you know, maybe want to confine crypto to a specific community or a specific set of beliefs. And, you know, I think, I think crypto, I think Bitcoin, I think Ethereum, I think these things are for, for everyone. I think the, the, the split is not, you know, am I, am I left of the political spectrum or if I, am I right of the political spectrum? Uh, the split is more, you know, do I believe in authoritarianism or do I believe in, in freedom in kind of libertarian worldview? I think authoritarianism is the thing that's probably incompatible with this decentralized movement. But for, for people who you know, believe in, in the sovereign individual, who believe in you know, individual freedoms, who are, are against uh, authoritarian state surveillance and other, other ways you know, powers try to, try to control individuals and populations, you know, the crypto movement is for you. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I think a lot of us are in this, obviously, as investors, but um, you know, we're, we're also in this for the social movement and because we believe this stuff can have a lasting positive impact on the world. Awesome. That's, that's a great place to close. Where, where can people f- follow you online and let us know if there's anything they should stu- stay tuned for? Yeah. So you can hit me on uh, Ryan S. Adams on Twitter. That's my handle. And uh, stay tuned for the launch of the Mythos Cosmos Validator. You can find out more information on that at mythos.services. Yeah, you could also find me on Twitter, just uh, at Dan Zeller. You could also find us on Medium. We will be producing content as you know, as we continue to learn new things on the investment side and our vision for research arm. So uh, be cognizant of that as well. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. It's been a fantastic episode. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay. Appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.